0: Well, God is good. It's interesting when I say make that statement, isn't it? And that's really the theme of the passage that we're going to look at, is the fact that the psalmist writes that God is good. And I'm going to tell you, as I was preparing for this, and I was looking for something to kind of introduce this, and I I kind of got stuck on that term, good. Because we say a lot of things are good, don't we? I, I mean, it was a good game. It was a good movie. Uh, that she's a good dancer. <laughs> that cheeseburger was really good. And then we say God is good. So what does that mean? And and so I went to Webster's Dictionary and I looked up. And she, by the way, there's like um, a whole column of good, whether it's the adjective or the noun and, and also uh, various variations depending on the context of the usage. But the best that I could match up with the context of the adjective for God being good was this, that is virtuous, right, commendable, kind, and benevolent. God is good. But what this doesn't mean is that there are not problems, troubles, sickness, the loss of a job, sometimes attacks, and personal attacks. In many respects, we, we say so often that God is good, but yet also then struggle because we go through so many things that really cause us to question whether that is a true statement or not. Is is really God that good? And what we find is God is good in spite of our sin and living in a sin-cursed world. We're going to look this morning at Psalm 34, and David is the one who wrote Psalm 34. We're going to look at the first 10 verses or so, but it's important that we understand the context of this psalm. Because the context here, this psalm was written right after David had had a couple of experiences. And and those experiences are recorded in 1 Samuel 21. And let me just kind of recap a little bit what was going on. Because even in the, the chapters leading up to that, David had been serving in Saul's court. Saul was king at the time. David was anointed to be the heir apparent. Much to Saul's upsetness over that, and he was not very pleased with that, but Saul was there, and on two different times, Saul had attempted to kill David. And after the second time, as Saul reached back and chucks that spirit David while he was playing his harp, and David took off on the run, and then you had the experience with Saul and Jonathan, or, or, or David and Jonathan, Saul's son, who they were so close of friends, and they go out there and they have the signal where Jonathan shoots the arrow to give him the signal that says, run. My father wants to kill you. Run. Run for your life. And so you get into Psalm, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 21, and David is on the run. He's just left Jonathan. He's running for his life. He has nothing with him. He's starving when he comes along to the priest Ahimelech. And he goes in, and this is the first 10 verses. You see the discourse here, and this is where Jesus referred to this in the Gospels of the time where David goes in, and he wants something to eat, and Ahimelech had nothing prepared except for the showbread. It was only for ceremonial things, but yet he gives him that bread to to uh, to sustain him at that time, and he was because he was so hungry. And he also says, "Look, you have anything? I don't have any weapons or anything. I'm running for my life. I have no weapons." And he says, "Well, all I've got here is that sword that you took off of Goliath." And so they they they, they pulls out this huge sword. David takes that sword, continues on running for his life, and then he goes on to. What he thinks, I I believe, the one place where Saul won't come looking, he goes to actually to Gath, where Goliath was from. And he comes across to the king of Gath, the Philistine, Achish. And Achish comes along and says, now wait a minute. Here's David, the mighty warrior. He even even recounts, now wait a minute, wait a minute. If I remember right, weren't you the one they sang the songs about that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands? And you can only imagine the absolute fear of David thinking, oh my goodness. Now I'm in big trouble because I'm at the hand of my enemies. And so he fakes being insane starts drooling and carrying on. We see several verses of the description of what's taking place. And they finally just say, what, this madman? And they just kind of shoo him off on his own and he escapes danger again. That's the context. That's what was going on in David's life when he then turns and pens the words in Psalm 34. Did David know problems and trials and troubles and fears oh yeah he was in the midst of it right then and yet we see in this psalm that he says taste and see that the lord is good taste and see that the lord is good what would make him write those words well, if you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 34. And if you don't have a Bible with you, just slip up your hand. We got ushers that uh, would love to get you a Bible into your hands, and uh, and we can take a look because we're going to walk through these first ten verses and see what it is that David said makes God a good God. What does David say about this good God? And so. As you look, and I just quoted from the, really the key phrase in this section of Psalm 34 is verse 8, in the first part where David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I, I mention that because David starts off, though, in verse 1, and kind of the first point that that we see here is, praise God in everything, exalt Him. Praise God in everything, exalt Him. And, and why do we say that? Well, look at the first three verses here. David starts off and he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And so David starts off with this statement. And this is a a statement saying, I will, I have resolved that I will bless the Lord. At this point, he doesn't really even say why. He just says, I will exalt him. His praise will be continually in my mouth. And we're going to see as we move on, he's going to show you and tell us why God is so good and why he is worthy of our praise. But we see there that he was resolved and fixed. I will. No question about it. No debating it. No looking at the circumstances or, or putting the finger up to see which way the wind is blowing. But David's saying, no matter the circumstances, no matter what I'm going through, I will. Praise the Lord. Praise is not just to be on our hearts, but David says praise is to be in our mouths. Praise is not just to be that which we we think on and meditate, although that's important, but it's even more, we should be telling people about the goodness of God. I will tell, it will be on my mouth. Constantly, continually it says, will this praise be? Over and over again and again, I will praise. I will tell others of this awesome, this good God. Verse 2, he goes on, he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. He says, literally, I'm going to brag about God. The things that I'm going to communicate is going to be about God. Now, you know, we got a lot of parents here, right? Come on, now. We all like to brag about our kids, right? I mean, they're the best-looking, they're the most talented, definitely the best in athletics. You always wonder what in the world that coach is thinking, right? Because they're not playing my kid. Right, okay. Yeah. by the way, that changes a little bit when you're actually the coach, but that's another story altogether. But... We like to brag about a lot of different things. But David is saying here, the thing that I'm going to be bragging about is God. I'm going to be bragging about this great God, this good God, and what he has done in my life. Let the humble hear and be glad. May it, may it just spread. May it, may it lift up everybody else that hears what's going on, that I can say, look at what God has done. Verse 3, David goes on and he says, I will magnify the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. When you see that word magnify, I mean, the first thing I think of is what? A, a magnifying glass the, of that lens that, that takes what's sometimes kind of smaller and just makes it bigger. Some of you may notice I like to move around when I'm speaking, and especially to a group this size. The biggest reason is I have trouble seeing all of you in the back. But let me say, as much trouble as I have seeing, without these little lenses that I've got in my eyes, I wouldn't be able to see you people up front. But they magnify the image. When I think of that, I think of the of the lens. I also think of the megaphone, of the saying, I'm going to take what's here and I'm going to make it big. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, make Him big to all that you come in contact with. Do you know that that's what our job is? That's what we're here to do. Not to magnify ourselves or even our children. But we're to be showing God off. Making God big in everybody else's eyes and ears. Because He is. Not just, oh, magnify the Lord, but let's magnify the Lord. Let's exalt Him together. Why do we meet the first day of the week and get together? Why do we spend this time in corporate worship? Because David says, because we ought to be doing it together. Because as much as one person can magnify, a whole group of people can magnify exponentially. It's what we call that, it's that power worship. And the power worship isn't just what's to take place on Sunday morning, but the power worship is what takes place every day as we go out from this place into this area. The impact that it can be as we magnify the Lord Together, I was reading this week and I came across um, a, a quote here from Steve Dormer. I say Steve Dormer, you probably doesn't doesn't mean anything with you, but Steve Dormer was actually the one that uh, invented. He, he wrote this software program, Eudora, the email program. anybody remember Eudora email program? I don't even know if it's still around, but uh, in um, eudora email is a variation where it's a software program where you could you, you could get your email in and out of and In 1997 there were 18 million people using eudora email And I was one of them at the time. That's kind of what caught my eye was was this email uh, program that we used to use and and so he, he wrote the the uh the software on this, and he was interviewed many years ago, here soon afterwards, and he said, they said, well, what's it like? You had 18 million people using your product, and he said, um, it, it, it is gratifying. But, it can make me a little hunted sometimes. I hear so many complaints that I'm wrong, stupid, and out to get them. When they're having trouble with their email He said literally he would get like A hundred emails a day Using his program by the way To get them and to send these emails And he said I mean it's great And a lot of people were very appreciative But there were so many people that whenever they were having problems With their email who are they going to blame The guy who wrote the software And we all know typically it's User error more than not But as I was reading that I thought You know what I wonder sometimes if that's how God feels. Where God provides these things and that, and yet the first time first time that something goes wrong, who's the first one that we are quick to blame? And most of the time it's user error. (laughs) Yeah. Praise God in everything. Exalt Him. So let me ask you. Think back over the last week. How much did you praise God? What are some things that you can think about to brag about God? Think about that in your life. Think about what's going on in your life. Where? What is it that you can brag about God? Now tell someone about that. Today, magnify him. Let let his praise be continually on your mouth. Point number two: Go to God in your fears and trouble. Focus on Him. Go to God in your fears and trouble. Focus on Him. The psalmist continues in verse four. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And there's, there's kind of a progression that we see here. And it starts off with David is in fear. And it says, so he then seeks the Lord. He sought the Lord. The Lord hears him. He answers him. And then he delivers him. Do you see the progression that takes place? And, and, and David just continues to say, look, the fears are real. I, they're there. I'm living in it right now. I'm running for my life. And yet, as soon as I go to the Lord, he hears me, he answers me. And he delivers me in the midst of it. It's not that there isn't fear. It's not that there aren't problems. It's not that there aren't difficulties that we go through. But yet, God is well aware when we go after, when we seek him... He's there. And He's willing to walk through it with us. We see verse 5. And those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Literally it's saying those who, who, um, who look to Him, those who focus their attention upon Him, it literally changes their countenance. They radiate. Have you seen that? Have you, have you come across where you interact with someone who, has been, who spends time with the Lord? Or you can see they walk with God. And you can literally see it in their countenance. Or maybe it's better to describe it this way by, by describing just the opposite. Can you see it when we're not? And you see the downcast. And you see all that takes place. That those who look to the Lord are radiant. It just exudes from them and their countenance and their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse six says, "This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him." David's now giving a personal, um, personal experience here. He says, "This poor man, look, I cried out; he heard me, and he delivered me. He saved me out of all of my troubles." He says. How about you? Have you experienced this good God that David writes about here? I think many times the reason why we're not experiencing this good God is because we're failing to do what David did. And he cried out and he sought the Lord. We're not seeking. We're not focused on the Lord. And we're especially not focused on the Lord in the midst of our difficulties and problems verse 7. One of my favorites here. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now as you look up this this term, the angel of the Lord, and, and especially in the Old Testament, there's a couple of different Meanings that we see a lot of times. Sometimes when, when the Bible talks about the angel of the Lord, it's talking about an angel from the Lord. And it's a messenger that's sent out and, and, and doing God's bidding. But many times when it says an angel of the Lord, it's talking about a, a Christophany, an appearance of God. The fact that, that, that Jesus is there. It's actually the presence of God. And here, I think, really what David is talking about here, and especially because he says, uh, um, and and the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Okay, we're, we're never commanded to fear angels, we're never commanded to bow down, but we are commanded to fear God. And so we see literally what David's saying is, he says the angel, he says the presence of God Almighty is right here. It's, it's right here around me, around what's going on. No matter what I'm going through, God's right here with me. And he's not just beside me, he's actually got the place surrounded. God's that big. That's the good God he's talking about. As I was reading that, I, I was reminded of it. Remember back in 2 Kings? I'm going to have you turn over there. 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember the story where Elisha and his servant, and and what's going on here is the king of Syria is attacking the king of Israel. And every time the king of Syria would get ready to attack Israel, God would go to the king of Israel and say, hey, you need to know... um, or Elisha would go, God would, would send Elisha, and Elisha would say, hey, God said the king of Syria is going to attack, and and pretty soon it got back to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria is getting kind of upset, because Elisha the prophet keeps messing up his plans to attack, and so Elisha and his servants are camped out here in a city, and all of a sudden they wake up one morning, and verse 15, 1 Kings 6, 15, when the servant of the man of God, Okay, the man of God was Elisha, so Elisha's servant here, arose early in the morning and went out. Behold, the army with horses and chariots was still around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So what's taking place here is all of a sudden they get up in the morning, the servant goes out to do his regular daily duties, and all of a sudden he looks around, and they were surrounded. And there's Elisha and his servant, city there, and, and the, the, the king of Syria, and all of the horses and chariots, and he comes running in, and I didn't read it with near the inflection, I'm sure that the servant had, was saying, oh my goodness, have you looked out there? We're surrounded. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. We, we, we got more people with us. And I can, and that servant's going, I have no idea what he's talking about. Not seeing it verse seventeen. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and saw, and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What happened was, they were in a really bad spot, they were surrounded, and all of a sudden Elisha says, Lord, open up his eyes, and he opens up his eyes, and he sees the heavenly host, the army, that's got that little army of Syria surrounded. Now you're worried, servant? No, not so much. That's what David's writing about when he says, look... The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He's right here with us. He's right there with you in the midst of whatever it is, your fears and your troubles that's going on. He's right there. The problem is so many times we are like that servant and we're not seeing it. We're not seeing the presence of this good God. We're not seeing this almighty creator. That's right there with us. So what do we do when we're in those times? What do we do in those times of fear? What do we do in those times of difficulties and troubles? Well, here you go. Five steps to handling fear and troubles. I know we we actually did a, a whole series on this a couple of months ago, but... Just remind you here a little bit. Here's five steps to handle fears and troubles. Number one, name it. Name it. What's the actual fear that's going on? You ever just had that, I'm just anxious, I'm just nervous, I'm fearful, but I don't even for sure know why and sometimes we uh, kind of play the so what game. When people come and say, and I'm nervous and anxious, well, what are you afraid of? Well, then you start with the first symptoms, and they say, you know, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I decided I would use an illustration here of this process here. So before the service, I told my son, Thomas, who's an eighth grader, I said, I'm going to use you as an illustration. And then immediately... Incited a little fear. So here you go. He's sitting there saying, Oh no, maybe you've got the fear of my dad is preaching and he's gonna use me as an illustration. So what's the problem with that? So what? Well, if he uses it, may be something embarrassing. So what? Well, if I'm embarrassed and, and other people may, and they may make fun of me, and they may and you go through and you figure out what that fear is, and name that fear. So many times we're we're, we're upset, we're afraid, but we don't even really know what exactly it is we're afraid of. Number two, it's reverse it. Reverse it. Whenever there is a fear, there is a desire that's driving that fear. What's the desire that's driving the fear? If it's, I don't want to be embarrassed, I'm afraid my dad's going to make me stand up and come up front. It's okay, buddy, I'm not. Okay, but what's the desire? The desire is, I want people to like me. I want people to think well of me. There's a desire that's driving that fear. What's that desire? Number three, pray about it. Pray about what? Pray about the fear? No, pray about the desire. Talk to God about that desire. Look, as most of our desires... In and of themselves, aren't necessarily bad. I, I I want to look good in front of people. I want to, I want people. I'm going to be well thought of. I want people to like me. It's not really a bad desire. Not necessarily. To what extent we take that, it can become a problem. But but talk to God about that. First of all, God already knows. But but talk to God. Say, Lord, here's what it is. Here's the fear. Here's the desire. Here's what I'm struggling with. And then number four, surrender that desire. When I use the term surrender, I'm literally saying take that desire and, and hold it out there with open hands. Take that desire and literally take it and just set it down right there for God. It doesn't mean that the desire still isn't completely there. But it's saying, Lord, whatever you want me to do with this, this desire, I'm willing to do. I'm giving this desire to you. And then number five. Love God and love others. Where does that fit in? Well, loving God and loving others is what God has commanded us to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you're dealing with that fear, one of the things we say is, figure out what the fear is, figure out what the desire is, give it over to God, talk to Him and surrender it, and then get busy doing what God has called you to do. Instead of just dwelling in this fear and going back and forth and wringing your hands and all the time and effort. looks God's given us so much to do. And as we go vertical with him and horizontal with everyone else, which is what the great commandment is all about. And he's saying, get busy doing the things that God has called us to do. And you may be amazed at what happens with that desire. And even more, you may you will be amazed at what happens in that fear. Go to God. Focus on Him. This is a 2x8. It is 5 feet long, this 2x8. Yesterday, this 2x8 was 10 feet long. It was in my garage. There's a reason why it's 5 feet. The reason is I can only fit 5 feet diagonally in the trunk of my car. And I had to bring it in today, so I cut it off to five feet. I wish it was ten feet. for the sake of the illustration, I want you to imagine that this board is still ten feet long. This is a two by eight, so it's about well was seven and seven and a, a three eighths or whatever. I don't know why they, they do that, but it's a little shy of eight inches. Now, I, I want to ask you, especially if this was ten feet long, and you see me walking on this two by eight. And I'm not having trouble falling off of the 2x8. If I were to pull everyone here and say, Look, how many of you could walk across a 2x8 laying on the floor here that's 10 feet long, and you can walk across the 2x8 without falling off? How many think you could do that? Maybe not everybody, but how many? No, 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 real high, real high. I mean, you're safe because I can't have you all come up and do this, Right? (laughs) Okay, put your hands down now let me ask this question What if I put this two by eight five stories up? What if you're going to walk between two buildings ten feet, two by eight same board and we'll support it well for a minute. And there's no no Boeing on a nice calm day, no wind. Everything else the same, but you're 50, 60 feet in the air. How many of you would walk across the 2x8? Come on now. That's like 90% of you. Okay, for all the rest of you chickens who wouldn't raise your hands, the question I have is why? What's the difference? It's the same 2x8. It's the same pair of shoes that I'm wearing. It's the same person that I'm walking across that board. The difference is what? Everything else around it When I'm walking here I focus on the board Focus on the destination But when you put this five stories up Now I'm focused on the ground I don't know about you I don't have a fear of falling I have a fear of hitting the pavement after I've fallen Okay (laughs) That's a legitimate fear It's okay What's the difference? It's the object of focus so the problem is we're walking on this two by eight and you don't have any problem with that. But then you start adding in all of the distractions, all of the stuff, all of the fears that we see that are accompany with that. And we get our focus on that instead of on God. God's the two by eight. What's David saying? He's saying, go to him in your troubles. Go to Him in your fears. Focus on Him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. They'll be delivered. So let me ask you this question. Am I focused on my fears or on an awesome God? This week... Was I focused on my fears, or was I focused on an awesome, good God? What's my biggest fear right now? Think about that. What is your biggest fear right now? Got it? Now, what's the desire that's driving that fear? Now, take it to the Lord. Lord. Take it to the Lord with an open hand. Surrender it to Him. And then put your efforts and your energies into what God has called you to do in building relationship with Him and reaching out to others. Love God and love others. That's your goal this week with that fear. David doesn't stop there, though. Finally, we get to verse 8 here that I quoted at the very beginning. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see, literally, number three, experience relationship with a good God. Trust him experience relationship with a good God taste and see both of those are dealing with the senses the the sense of of taste and and smell that goes with that The, the sense of sight he's saying experience this God see if he isn't good taste and see that he's good blessed is the man well off better off is the man who takes refuge in him. You know, our, our senses, there, there, there's some things that you just need to experience. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I could bring up a jar of honey, and I could tell you about how sweet that honey is, and you can look at that honey, and you can imagine in your mind that that must be kind of sweet. But it isn't until you actually dip that finger in there and taste that honey do you fully appreciate how sweet the honey is because you have experienced that taste. Literally what David's saying is he's saying experience the goodness of God. Why? Because David had seen it in his life. Not trouble free not without problems, but in the midst of those problems and troubles, he saw a good God at work. And he's saying, taste and see this good God. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's interesting, this word refuge. My daughter and I were out for a walk a couple of days ago, and she was telling me some things. She's been reading through Psalms, and she actually... Brought up this word refuge, and she says, "I got one question for you. What is a refuge? What, what really, what, what's when, when the psalmist talks about that? What, what is the refuge?" And and I kind of chuckled because I knew that it was in this passage as well coming up. And I, I, literally, the the refuge is. I, I think of the refuge. I think of a a shelter. I think of when when you're out in the rain and all of a sudden you see that shelter and you go and you stand under the shelter. And it hides you from the rain. It's that protection. It's that security. And literally what, what, what David is saying here is take shelter. Get underneath the protection of God. Is literally what he's saying here. Verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord. You, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Here he says to fear him. And and this fear, it's not a, a trembling fear, although it is at times. It's this reverential awe that we have as we stand before the almighty God, the creator of the universe. It's this unbelievably magnificent God. It's this all-powerful God, and, and is there some trembling? Yes, a, a little bit. There ought to be, but but it's not trembling because we're afraid that He's going to squash us like a bug. Because on the contrary, He says, "I love you. I love you more than you can ever know. I want relationship with you. I love you so much I sacrificed my son for you." This is a fear of the Lord. You who are saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. They lack nothing. See, God God will give what is truly good, what is best, to those who fear Him. We, We want many times things that may be harmful for us. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, No really good thing shall be denied to those who first and main end in life is to seek the Lord let me say that again no really good thing is denied to those whose first and main end in life is to seek the Lord no really good thing I'll say it this way not every good thing is good for me All the time. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Not every good thing is good for me all the time. And I trust God that he knows the difference. There are a lot of things that that are relatively good, but God knows right now, in this time, in this situation, probably wouldn't be so good for me. And so he withholds it from me. Why? Because it's really not good for me right then. And you say, well, it's not sin. It's not wrong. But yet, it isn't really what I need right then. And he discerns that. And he knows that. And I should thank him for it. This is really experiencing relationship. And it goes on in verse 10 there, kind of closes out the section. He says, young lions suffer in one hunger. Even the king of the beast, even the most vibrant of these animals in the animal kingdom, yeah, they get hungry, <laughs> and they get real hungry sometimes. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But those who seek the Lord, and you catch all these words, taste and see and fear and seek the Lord. What's he saying? Experience relationship with him. This is exactly what Pastor Kent was speaking on last week when he he was talking about John chapter 15, abiding with Christ. Abiding in Christ. Having relationship with him. So how how do we seek relationship? How do we experience relationship? Well, here you go. Here's five steps. Five things to help us experience relationship. Number one, spend time listening to Jesus, the living word. How do we listen to Jesus, the word? By reading the word. Do you listen to God speak? God speaks to us through his word. And I want to caution you though... This isn't just the checking off of boxes. This is actually, have you ever sat down and actually just pictured in your mind as you're reading Scripture that God is speaking to you? As if you're you're just sitting there at the foot and Jesus is speaking to you. And you're just sitting there listening to what He has to say to you as He says, Lord, or Steve, this is what I want you to know. This summer I've been reading through uh, Proverbs. And over and over and over. And, and, and every time it says my son, there, I literally try to picture him saying, Look, my son, you need to know this. And, and, and so we, we we listen to that. When, when, he's, when we're reading through the Old Testament, and working through Judges as well, and, and reading through that, and it's like let, let me Steve let, let me tell you a story that that may help you today. And, and he's relaying this to me. It's actually listening to him speak to me because that's that's what reading scripture is about. Number two, talk to him. I know, I know, I know. Read your Bible and pray every day and you grow, grow, grow. Right? We can sing the song and all this Sunday school thing, right? And unfortunately, sometimes that's the way we just kinda just of make Yeah. Actually, yes. But but it's not just praying, it's not just shooting off this little Hey Lord, thank you for this day. You ever notice how we always start with that? And, but it's actually what the Scripture says, praying without ceasing. What, what is praying without ceasing? It's literally saying, we're going to have a constant communication throughout the day. It's like Mark coming up with me. You can stay right there. But he says, we're just going to hang out today. And we go throughout the day, and everything that's going on in that kind of turn and say, hey, can you believe that? And we, and we have this constant Dialogue that's going back and forth throughout the day. It's not that we're always talking, because we're doing whatever we're doing, but we're together, we're in fellowship, and we're just kind of chatting as we go through life and the events that are taking place. That's what it means, where we're praying with that, we're in constant communication with the Lord. Number three, worship. Music. You want to know a great way to experience God? Music is powerful. Worship music is powerful. Incorporate worship music throughout the day. Have it on in the car, have it on in the house when you're doing so It's amazing to me how many mornings I wake up, anybody have this, where you are singing or humming one of the songs Larry picked out and sang on Sunday morning. We all sang. It's, it's, it's like, it'd be Thursday and I'm thinking, I haven't thought of this song, but yet, and it's nothing magical about the song and it's nothing magical about Larry. It's because it's talking about God Almighty. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna cut that phrase right there. And I'll hear that one in the office as well. Worship music. Experience God. Number four, be quiet and listen. Be quiet and listen to the Holy Spirit. Literally meditate on God's Word. When we're quiet, when we're just letting it Roll over and just meditating on that. That's, uh, God's Word is what the Holy Spirit will use and speak to us through. Allow Him that. And then number five, obey. Obey. Filter every decision that you make throughout the day through His Word. Whatever's going on, ask yourself this question. Is, Is there something that was said here? Is there a principle that applies to this situation? Is there a principle or a verse that I know from Scripture that applies to this and then do it? If you do those things, I guarantee you will experience a good God. Taste and see. Experience this God. Three weeks ago, my family and I went to Kings Island. Kings Island. We're from Ohio, so Kings Island rules when it comes to amusement parks for us. Like Six Flags, but Kings Island's great. One of the rides there at Kings Island is called the Drop Zone. And I know they have these rides at other places as well. But the Drop Zone is this. It's 315 feet up. And what you do is you get strapped in, in this big circle facing out along this big pole, 315 feet high. And you slowly ascend up to the top of that 315 foot tower. And then you, I actually wrote down the statistics. Then you, all of a sudden, as you wait there with great anticipation, just holding, knowing it's going to come. You then immediately drop 264 feet, reaching a speed of 67 miles an hour, pulling three G's in the process before the brakes start to enact. Ironically, although I couldn't believe it when I read the statistic, the whole thing, the whole drop only takes 1.7 seconds sure seemed like a whole lot longer when you're strapped in there. 1,001, 1,000, yeah, that that was it. Something about your stomach being above your head in the process. Now, as we went there, and we were kind of a group of, in our family and, and some extended family there, and there was uh, four of us who went on that ride, and there were a few others that stood there at the bottom like that shaking their heads and laughing the whole way because they said, not me, I'm not going to do that. And they can see that that's a pretty spectacular ride, but they really don't know how spectacular and awesome that feeling was until you've experienced it. Some of us experienced it a couple of times. <laughs> that's what David's saying. Sum it up. That, that's what he's saying. He saying, you've got this good God. You come in here. You hear about this good God. We talk about this good God. You, you sort of see this good God. But are you experiencing this good God? Taste and see that God is good. Make a plan this week. Today, how are you, how are you going to experience relationship with God this week? Exalt him. Focus on him. Trust him. Spend time with him. Put him to the test. See if he isn't good.